All right. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 139. Brother John saw how many notes were, and he decided he was going to get comfortable. <laughs> I was going to start unbuttoning his shirt and everything over there. <laughs> oh, for the sake of us all, please leave your shoes on. <laughs> Does anybody need a pen? Everybody got a pen? All right, I know there's, there is a lot of notes, but I gave you almost all of my notes, um, and you're going to be doing a lot of writing tonight. I mean, there's a lot of little blanks, one-word blanks, um, <clears throat> and for the sake of time, I'm going to try to stick as close, to I, as close as I can to my notes. Um, if I get off a point too, too much, we're going to be here all night, and so I'm going to try to get you out around the same time as what we normally get out. That's one of the reasons we did a little bit quicker on some of the other stuff, but we're going to talk about abortion tonight. And all of us would say, oh, abortion's, you know, abortion's wrong, um, and it is, but why? And there's a lot of reasons. Very biblical, obviously, is, is our foundation, but there's even a whole lot more reasons beyond that, and that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. Um, be ready to write, because almost every statement, not every statement, but almost every statement I make is going to have a blank in it um, that you can fill in. And I didn't even, I didn't do a PowerPoint tonight because there's a lot of notes, and that would, I mean, Josh would have been flipping one after the next, and you might miss it by the time, so um, <clears throat> just to save time, I did an outline like this, and uh, you can fill these in. So here's number one, and I'm not going to give you every point, and, you know, other than to try to maybe keep us on, but just kind of try to follow along with your notes um, as we go through here. Uh, but we could easily say that abortion is murder and be done with it. Uh, the Bible says very clearly in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13, thou shalt not kill. And just because, you know, um, just because it's an infant or an unborn baby doesn't mean that that doesn't apply. But obviously, um, that argument doesn't hold water with a lot of people because they say, well, it's not a baby. You know, it's not a human. It's still inside the mother. It's a fetus. It's not this. It's, you know, it, 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 we're not killing something that's not even alive yet. So that means then that we need to establish the humanity of the unborn. Now, I want to show you this in Psalm 139. In verse number 13, the Bible says this, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul, my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned when as yet there was none of them. If that is not as clear as day that that's talking about an unborn baby, that even when it's just a little blob, as they call it, when it's a few days old in the womb, God knows exactly who that baby is. And he, you know, yet being unperfect, that means unborn, unformed. In thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Oh, well, it's not a baby until it, you know, it takes all the form of a baby and everything else. This says when it was not even formed, when there was nothing formed of that baby, God knew every part that was coming. God knew every portion of that baby, and he was fearfully and wonderfully making that baby into something. So uh, both Hebrew and Greek do not make a distinction between preborn and born babies. Uh, a baby in the Hebrew and in the Greek is a baby, whether it's preborn or born. 
whether they live outside or inside the womb, is not important as to their value or personhood. The prophet Isaiah, and for sake of time, don't turn to these verses. I'll read them to you. But the prophet Isaiah says he receives God's calling and naming while he was still in the womb. Isaiah chapter 49 and verse number 1. The Lord hath called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. He knew his name before he was born. You don't name something that's not a person, right? I mean, obviously we have names for dogs and all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, you don't have a person that goes through life with no name, right? Because it's a person. And the same thing. Isaiah's name was given. God knew his name when he was in the womb. Uh, the psalmist states that he was a spiritual being from the point of conception. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So from the point of conception, he was a spiritual being. Jeremiah declares that God knew him, consecrated him, appointed him a prophet before he was even conceived. That's about as far back as you can go, Right? Uh, from God's perspective, Jeremiah's humanity began even before conception. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Before I formed thee in the belly. And then before you came out of the womb. So obviously this is talking about before conception and after conception, but still in the womb. God knew who he was. He had, a, he had a job for him. He had set him apart to be a prophet. So, um, obviously, uh, he was a person yet unborn. Uh, letter E, the unborn John the Baptist had a physical reaction to the presence of Mary, and especially her unborn child. Luke chapter 1, verse 41, it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Now, John the Baptist was about three months older than Jesus, um, but Mary went to see Elizabeth not long after she had conceived. And this is John the Baptist, an unborn baby, reacting to Jesus Christ in the womb. And you can say, oh, well, every mother feels the baby kick and everything else. But the Bible is very specifically making a point to say that John the Baptist reacted to Jesus being in Mary. At that point, Jesus was probably only a few weeks old, you know, um, and yet John the Baptist in the womb. Uh, scripture tells us that as soon as the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary about God's plan for the Holy Ghost to overshadow her and to conceive the Messiah in her, and she consented, she went to see Elizabeth. Elizabeth was about 70 miles from Nazareth. I mean... So it took a few days to get there and everything else, but it was not long after Jesus was conceived. John the Baptist was in the womb maybe three, four months. Jesus was in the womb maybe a month or two. And obviously they're having reactions within the womb. So um, the movement, I would call it, to, um, for pro-abortion, they call it pro-choice, their own label. It's, it's a twisted deception because um, it, it's covering up for a social genocide where the right to choose or kill somebody's preborn baby reigns supreme over that baby's human rights, um, over the rights of the mother to, to get accurate information about the, the, the fetus, if you want to call it that, that's developing, uh, the rights of the mother to know the dangerous consequences to herself from an abortion, um, the rights uh, of the, 
you know, the rights over a parent of a, of a pregnant minor. Uh, all these things are being taken away, you know. Um, the rights over the, the rights of the preborn baby's father. He doesn't have a right in whether or not that baby is aborted or not. Um, over the rights of human society to protect all its members, no matter what their social status, their economic independence, their physical limitations, their acceptance by their families. I mean, all of these pro-choice, it's, it's a twist of deception because it's a social genocide is what it is, wrapped up in the idea of a woman's right. And we're going to talk about that. But those who continue, this is number three, to fight against legislation restricting abortion are not pro-choice, they're pro-abortion. And more specifically, they're pro-murder. They don't want to call it that, but that's exactly what it is, according to the Bible. So let's get into this. We've laid a little bit of the groundwork. We talked about establishing the humanity of an unborn baby. So let's look tonight at what I believe about abortion and why. And hopefully you'll come to the same conclusion. But number one, why I am against abortion. Of course, we have some biblical arguments against abortion. Now, I apologize. I, I had printed half of this before I realized that I probably should have put it in a little bit of a booklet form. So you have page one. Um, page one and two, and then page three and page four. So that's how you'll have to do it. You can't really fold it in half necessarily. Um, hopefully you can follow along. But there's a lot of biblical arguments um, against abortion. First of all, we must acknowledge that the Bible doesn't say anything about, uh, specifically about abortion. Uh, so why the silence on the issue of abortion? It does not say thou shalt not kill an unborn baby. It says thou shalt not kill um, but abortion was so unthinkable to an Israelite woman that um, the Bible doesn't say anything about it. Um, there was no need to even mention it in a criminal code. Children were, were viewed as a gift. They were viewed as a heritage of the Lord. So there was no need in their criminal code to say anything about abortion. The, the scriptures state, and the Jews concurred, that God opens and closes the womb, that he's sovereign over conception. Childlessness was seen as a curse. And I don't have to go into a lot of those different things, but look at Hannah. Hannah thought, what did I do? What, you know, why is God against me? Because I can't have a baby. You know, it, was, it was considered a curse to not have a child. So to, to take the baby's life was, was inconceivable. So um, in Psalm 139, David speaks of God's relationship with him while he was growing and developing before birth. And again, for the sake of time, we're, gonna, we're not going to you know, go through all of these things. We already read in Psalm 139, but this is David being cared for by God while he was in the womb. You know, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Even before I formed you, you know, uh, even before you had parts, even before there was distinct fingers and toes and all of this stuff, I knew who you were and I knew who you were going to be. And I was watching over you. I was protecting you. Um, that's David being cared for by God in the womb. In verse 13, we see that God's the master craftsman. Uh, fashioning David into a living person. Um, in verse 14 and 15, David reflects on the fact that he's a product of God's creative work within his mother's womb, and he praises God for how wonderfully God had woven together all of his, you know, uh, him. David also says, Thine eyes have seen my substance, yet being unperfect. That, that says that God knew who David was even before David was known to others. Uh, the term translated substance, yet being unperfect, is, is a noun derivative of a, ver of a verb that means wrapped. So when, when David was just a forming fetus, God's care and compassion already extended to him. Psalm 51, from the time of conception, David had a sin nature. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me, it says in Psalm 51 and verse 5. Here's number four. Human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. 
Bearing the image of God is the essence of humanness. Bearing the image of God is the essence of humanness. God's image in man was marred at the fall, but it wasn't erased. And so we are still created in God's image. Genesis chapter 1. And I know I'm going through these things quickly. If you need something repeated, just raise your hand. I'll go back to it. But Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let, us let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. By the way, there's only two genders. There's male and female. And I think, I think thankfully, I think people are starting to come to that conclusion. Um, we, we've seen the confusion that comes from all of this transgender stuff. And I'm not going to get off on all of those things. But even, even people that we, would be, that we would consider part of the world is, are coming to the conclusion that there are only two genders. And you are your biological gender, and that's it. Um, and the Bible is very clear. Male and female created he him. If God wanted there to be, you know, all these other things, he would have listed all the genders right there when he was talking about how he created them. He created us male and female, and that's it. But um, the Bible says in, in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. The unborn baby is made in, uh, in the image of God, and therefore in God's sight, he is completely human. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, in verse number 7, For a man indeed ought not cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. James chapter 3 and verse 9, Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. We move on to the back page there. The Old Testament legal code is another argument against abortion. Um, and, and, I, and I do want you to turn to Exodus chapter 21, if you will, because we're going to make mention of this again a little bit later on. But in Exodus chapter 21, in verse number 22, um, we have, and you'll see this a little bit later on, controversial passages or views. Uh, those who try to use the Bible in favor of abortion use this passage. Um, how you can do that, I don't know, but they try it, and so we're going to address it. But Exodus chapter 21 and verse number 22 says, If men strive and hurt a woman with child, so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. If any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe, and so on. Now, this verse appears to teach that if a woman give birth prematurely, but the baby's not injured, then only a fine is appropriate. Um, obviously, that's what it's talking about, so that her fruit depart from her and yet no mischief follow. In other words, the baby does not die, then this person is to be fined. But if the child dies, then the laws of retaliation should follow that. Um, in other words, killing an unborn baby would, would, would carry the same penalty as killing a born baby. It's exactly what he's talking about. But if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life. In other words, if you take the life of an unborn baby, then your life ought to be taken. And obviously that's a principle that we see, you know, um, whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. You kill a person, you ought to die. Um, that's the death penalty, and we've, we've done away with that for the most part in the United States, but that's as biblical as it can be. But this is applying to an unborn baby. If you do something to the mother, 
Not even, you know, I mean, this still wasn't even talking about just going in and killing the baby. This was talking about if you did something to the mother where the baby died inside the mother because of something you did, then you deserve to die. Um, a baby inside the womb has the same legal status as a baby outside the womb. And, and, and this also applies to our legal code today. Brother John, you've probably seen this happen as well, but if a woman is injured and the baby dies, they charge that person for murder. You know, if, if, a, if a pregnant woman is killed, they charge for two murders. And it, it just, it, it blows my mind that, that within our legal system, if you kill somebody who has a baby and the baby dies as well, they're going to charge you for murder, but yet you can legally walk into an abortion clinic and have a murder, you know, ha have an abortion and murder your baby and walk out and it's cheered. Where's, you know, where's the justice in that? Why is there so much hypocrisy in that? But that's exactly what it is. So that's the, that's the biblical arguments. And of course, we looked at a lot of those in the first introductory section. So I wasn't going to go do all of those again. But we also have medical arguments against abortion. At conception, the embryo is genetically distinct from the mother. We're looking at this kind of from a scientific aspect, but the, the little baby as a single cell or a single couple cells is distinct genetically from the mother. Now, to say that a developing baby is no different from, uh, by the way, this is what they say, but to say that a developing baby is no different than the mother's appendix or something like that is just scientifically wrong. But that's how, they, that's how they get away with it. Well, it's the mother's body. It's her right to choose. I can choose to get my appendix out if I want to. I can choose to get this baby taken out if I want to. But that's just scientifically wrong. A baby is completely genetically distinct from the mother. Okay? An appendix is not genetically distinct from the mother. Genetically, it's part of the mother. A baby is not. It's genetically distinct. A developing embryo is also genetically different from the sperm and the egg that created it. A human being has 46 chromosomes. Sperm and the egg have 23 each. And so a trained geneticist can distinguish between the DNA of an embryo um, and, and that of the sperm and the egg. So scientifically speaking, we're talking about a completely different person. Now, here's another thing that, that we can talk about when we come to the medical argument. There's a medical definition of life and death. Um, and if... Um, if one set of criteria has been used to define death, they could also be used to define life, right? Uh, death used to be defined by the cessation of a heartbeat. Heartbeat stops, the person's dead, right? If the cessation of a heartbeat could define death, then could we also say then that the onset of a heartbeat defines life? The heartbeat of a baby is formed by the 18th day in the womb. Most, most women don't even know that they're with child at the 18th day. And the baby's already got a heartbeat. So if we're going to say that death is when there is no longer a heartbeat, then could we not also say that life is when there is a heartbeat? Now, I say we go back before that. Um, but that would mean that, okay, medically speaking, an abortion would be illegal after the 18th day, which, as I said, most people don't even know that they have a baby in there by the 18th day. Um, so if a heartbeat was used to define life, then basically all of abortions would be outlawed. Physicians now use a more cr uh, rigorous criterion for death. Uh, they, they use brainwave activity. When there's no longer a brainwave activity happening, they declare somebody legally dead. But 
um, you know, so a flat EEG, which is what measures the brain wave activity, is one of the most important criteria used to determine death. So if the cessation of brain wave activity can define death, the onset of brain wave activity should also be able to define life. Individual brain waves are detected in a fetus after about 40 days. Using brain wave activity to define life would outlaw at least another huge majority of abortions. So if, if that's what we're using, obviously it's not going to outlaw all of them. Um, it's, it's a deeper issue than medically, but if we were going to go by the medical definition of life and death, then no baby should ever lose its life after it's been in the womb for 40 days. None, because physically speaking, that is a life. There is brainwave activity in a baby that is 40 days old. And so here's, here's some, just some interesting things that, that I just don't understand how you could take the life of a baby, but a developing fetus has a unique set of fingerprints as well as a genetic code that makes it unique. But after just, I, I, cannot, I can't remember off the top of my head what the, what the date, uh, the day number is, but very early on, very early on, that baby already has its own set of fingerprints. Um, the, developing, uh, the development of sonography, which is um, basically what they use for uh, a sonograph, obviously, an ultrasound. Um, is It gives us a window to the womb, basically, but it shows us that a person is growing and developing in the mother's womb. You can discern eyes, ears, fingers, nose, mouth. You can see all of that. Um, and, and I remember seeing that with each one of my kids when we first found out that, you know, that she was going to have another baby, you know. You go there and you look at it and you can see, and they're just getting more and more uh, advanced. I mean, you could see the facial features. You can see a baby sucking his thumb. I mean, in the first trimester, I mean, just early, early on. And, um, you know, it's, it's amazing that, that somebody could go and take that baby's life. So medical science leads to a pro-life perspective rather than a pro-choice perspective. So if, if medical science can be used at all to draw a line, the clearest line is the moment of conception. Uh, but we also have legal arguments against abortion. I wish we had a little bit more time to develop this. I'm just going to stick with my notes here on this as well. But the case of Roe versus Wade violated standard legal reasoning. Now, Roe versus Wade, uh, I, 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 I want to get into it, but I don't because we don't have time. But um, uh, the lady who stood in basically defense of abortion um, because she had had one um, and won the case it ended up becoming a Christian um, and regretted to the day that she died, uh, number one, having an abortion, but number two, standing up and being the defendant in that case. And she spent the rest of her life fighting against abortion. We're still fighting Roe versus Wade. It's not been overturned yet. Um, I think we're moving in on that. We're getting close to that. Um, with the judges that we have on the Supreme Court now, there's a possibility that Roe versus Wade could be overturned. But it's not, it's not been done yet, and that happened in the 1960s. So the Supreme Court decided not to decide when life begins and then turned around and overturned the laws of 50 different states. That's what Roe versus Wade did. Now, um, most of the Supreme Court's verdict rested on two sentences. Here's what they said. We need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins. When those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus, the judiciary, at this point in the development of man's knowledge, is not in a position to speculate as to an answer. So they said, we don't know when life begins. We can't define that. 
Medicine can't define that, so we're not in a position to say when life begins. So we can't say that taking a baby's life before it's born is actually taking a human life. Now, the decision seems unpretentious by acknowledging that it didn't know when life begins. But if the court didn't know when life begins, then it should have acted as if life was in the womb. That's what they do on every other legal case. If you don't know, then you err on the side of caution, basically. <laughs> you know. So if you don't know when life begins, then they should have, and legal reasoning told them that they should have erred on the side of saying, we don't know when life begins, so we're just going to assume that this is life. Essentially, what they did is, we don't know when life begins, so we're just going to assume that it's not life. And that overturned what you had in 50 states. All 50 states were opposed to this thing. And Roe versus Wade, and that's why I say, you know, so a crucial role of government is to protect life. Government can't remove a segment of the human population from its protection without adequate justification. And they had none of it. The burden of proof should lie with the life taker and the benefit of doubt should be with the life saver. Um, put another way, when in doubt, don't. You know, a, a hunter that hears a rustling in the woods doesn't just shoot at it and hope he hits something that he was aiming at. You know, you hear a rustling in the woods, I don't know what that is, so I'm not going to shoot yet. I'm going to wait to see if it's another person or something else. But essentially, that's what Roe versus Wade did. They heard a little rustling in the woods, so they, they shot it, and they went over there, and oh, it's a baby. Oh, well, that's what happens, you know. That's essentially the, the recklessness that Roe versus Wade had in their legal reasoning process. Um, same way, a court that doesn't know when life begins should not declare open season on the unborn, and that's exactly what they did. The burden of proof in law is on the prosecution. The benefit of the doubt is with the defense. Our legal justice system says that you are innocent until proven guilty. So it is the job of the prosecution to prove that you are guilty, uh, and that's known as presumption of in innocence. So a defendant is assumed to be innocent unless he's proven guilty, and again, the burden of proof is on the entity that would take away life or liberty. The benefit of the doubt lies with the defense. So the Supreme Court clearly stated that it doesn't know when life begins, and then it violated the very spirit of the legal principle by acting as if it just proved that no life existed in the womb. Even more curious was the fact that to do that, it had to ignore the religious community, it had to ignore the international community on the whole subject of abortion, uh, had the religious community really failed to reach a consensus? I don't think so, especially in the 1960s, you know. Um, there were some intramural disagreements, certainly, um, you know, when it was a baby, was it at conception or was it at the, you know, when the, when the heartbeat started or when the brave brainwave started or whatever else. I mean, you could talk about those different things, but um, certainly the weight of evidence indicated that Western culture that was founded on Judeo-Christian values held abortion to be morally wrong. I mean, people with widely different theological perspectives. I mean, the Jews, the Catholics, the Baptists, the Presbyterians, the, the um, you know, everybody, everybody from very widely different theological backgrounds shared a common agreement about the humanity of the unborn. So this Roe versus Wade decision just completely flew in the face of every religion, just about. Now that's changing, obviously. Sadly, certain denominations are saying that abortion is okay. And saying that, well, it depends on the case, and it depends on this, and it depends on that. And they're not defending the unborn anymore. But the international legal community at the same time also had a general consensus that abortion is murder. Um, physicians around the world that subscribe to the Hippocratic Oath, you've heard of that before? One of the things that's in that Hippocratic Oath says, I will not give, an, give a woman a pessary 
to produce abortion. A pessary is basically just a medicine that's going to create an abortion, cause the baby to die. That's part of the Hippocratic Oath that doctors take. The unborn were protected by various international documents like the Declaration of Geneva, the UN Declaration of the Rights of the Child. I mean, so when Roe versus Wade decision, when that decision came down, it was very, very, uh, at the very least, legally reckless. And it was, it, it was very opposed to religion, to international, to everything, to everything. And obviously those in the pro-abortion community, it was a huge victory. It was a huge defeat for those in the pro-life camp. And it still has not been overturned today. Now let me give you some philosophical arguments against abortion. And we'll move a little quicker, quicker through these. But a key philosophical question is where do you draw the line? Put another way, when does a human being become a person? Um, the Supreme Court decision of Roe versus Wade separated personhood from humanity. In other words... The judges argued that a developing fetus was a human, a member of the homo sapien race, uh, but it was not a person. It was a human, but not a person. And there's a, there's a difference. Um, since only persons are given protection under the 14th Amendment in the Constitution, the court argued that abortion could be legal at certain times. Because if you're just killing a human and not a person, then that's different. That left to doctors, parents, or even other judges the responsibility of arbitrarily deciding when personhood should be awarded to human beings. Now, back when Roe versus Wade was, was uh, that decision came down and abortion was made legal, there was still a lot of people who were against killing humans and persons, but killing humans. And so this was just in the, in the dire circumstance, then abortion is legal. And that's the way everybody kind of looked at it. Now, certainly there were some people who didn't care and thought, if you want an abortion, go kill the baby. But because of that decision and because how you know, things always progressively get worse, uh, a lot of things have come from that. So uh, once the court allowed people to start drawing lines, some drew them in unexpected ways and effectively opened the door for infanticide and euthanasia, which is killing of old people or killing of sick or, you know, mentally handicapped people or whatever else. So that leaves the door open for some people to draw the line using biological criteria to define a person. The court chose the idea of viability, allowed for the possibility that states could outlaw abortion performed after a child was viable, but that makes viability an arbitrary, an arbitrary criteria. What, is, what makes a human viable? What makes that person, uh, uh, what makes that human a person? So Others drew the line considering that a child born at two days old so it could be examined to see if it were an acceptable member of the human society. That's what we're having now. Look, even our, even our uh, I almost said stupid governor, but that's, that's really what he is. He's an idiot because he cares nothing about human life. He's talking about the fact that a baby born up to a week can be killed. How can you do that? It's exactly what it is. I mean... You can, you can, I mean, I, I don't agree with it, and I'm doing everything to try to convince you otherwise, but I can maybe understand somebody saying that a baby that's 18 days old in the womb that doesn't have a heartbeat is not a person. I don't agree with it, but I can, I can possibly understand that. But how can you take a baby that is a week or two weeks old out of the womb and decide, you know what, this is not really a, hum this is not really a person. Uh, it's still just a lump of cells all clumped together and... Look at this thing. Get rid of it. 
How can you do that? How can you do that? How can you, how can you as a sane person, do that? But that's what's happening. You know, when you allow people to draw the line as to what defines somebody being a person, then you can draw the line anywhere. And that's, that's what's happening. Other people have suggested that there be a cultural criterion for personhood. A newborn baby is not truly a human until he or she has been molded by cultural influences later on. So that would allow you to kill a baby up to five or six years old if you want to. And you think it's crazy, but there are people out there that are saying this. And it sounds crazy right now, but in 10, 15 years, that's what we're going to be arguing. You know, if we don't stand up to this and if we don't do something about it, it's not going to be long before it's okay to kill a baby that's two or three weeks old. And then it's going to be okay to kill a baby that's two or three months old. And then it's going to be okay to kill a baby that's two or three years old because it's just based on this criterion. We're not killing a person. We're just killing a human that never made it to personhood. You allow them to draw the lines, they're going to draw it wherever they feel like drawing the lines. I mean, call it crazy, but look what they did in China. You can only have one baby. And if you have another one, then you can have another one, but you're going to have a huge fine or you better kill it because it's not a human at that point. Wherever you draw the lines, is, and people are going to do it. Some people use mental criteria and, and don't think that this is crazy. People are already trying to do this. Humans, this is, this is a quote. Humans without some minimum of intelligence or mental capacity are not persons. No matter how many of these organs are active, no matter how spontaneous their living processes are, or an individual was not truly a person unless he has an IQ of at least 40. That means if a baby's born and he's two years old and you find out that he's mentally slow, or, I mean, a lot of times they know that before the baby's born. They, they tell you your baby's going to be born with Down syndrome or whatever else. You can decide after a certain amount of time if you feel like he's reached an IQ of personhood or if he's basically the same as, like, a monkey or something like that that has no IQ, humanly speaking. And you think it's crazy, but they're drawing lines there already. You're not humanly, you're, you're not viable as a human. Yeah, you're a person. I mean, I mean you're not viable as a person. Yes, you're a human. You're a member of the homo sapien race, but you're not a person because you didn't reach this mental status. It's happening. So that's the, the, the philosophical arguments against abortion. Where do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line? Here's some physiological arguments against abortion. Physiology is basically the, the study of the human body. Um, but let me give you, all of these are post-abortion syndromes. And this, this comes from women who have had abortions. Um, obviously, this is not going to describe every one of them, but post-abortion syndrome, self-destruction, guilt, and anger. Um, abortion is deeply troubling because it touches on three central issues of a woman's self-concept, concept, her sexuality, her morality, and her maternal, maternal identity. A mother has that maternal instinct. And obviously, some would say, well, I just don't feel that way. I didn't feel like a mother and blah, blah, blah. But they have that. And I suppose your conscience can be so seared that you don't feel that anymore. Uh, you can go kill your baby and not feel anything. I'm sure there's people out there that are like that. But the majority of women who have abortions, 63% of women who have had an abortion seek mental health care. There was a 154% increase in suicide for mothers that have had abortions. 
the suicide rate within one year after an abortion was three times higher than for all other women, seven times higher than for women carrying to term, and nearly twice as high as for women who suffered a miscarriage. Suicide attempts appear to be especially prevalent among post-abortion teenagers. Because the thing is, she's also at the same time that she's dealing with killing her own child, is dealing with the loss of that child. Uh, far from being no big deal, which is how the abortion clinics and how abortion is you know, minimized in our culture, abortion is a very traumatic event in the life of a woman that's had one. And they try to minimize it, they try to act like it's not a big deal, but for most of these women who have had an abortion, it's a huge deal for them. Um, in many women with a history of abortion, there's an alarming increase of self-destructive behavior. Many women are consumed with self-hatred, expressing it in drug uh, or alcohol abuse or both. A majority of, I say post-abortive, what I'm talking about is a woman who has had an abortion, plagued by guilt. Many of them can't get out of, the, out of their heads the fact that they just killed a baby. Um, and, and the thing is, these abortion clinics, Planned Parenthood is such an evil organization. Um, if they would let the mother see what's happening when they're doing this abortion, they would never, never have another one, and they would do everything they can to fight against it. There's a book. What's that book? Unplanned. It's called Unplanned. It was written by a woman who is actually, in fact, I think that they, they made a movie out of it too, but um, this, this woman wrote a book called Unplanned, and she worked in an abortion clinic fighting for women's rights to have an abortion. And a doctor had to step out or something happened, and they asked her, can you come in and, and assist us with this, with this abortion? She went in there, and they have the ultrasound up and everything else. Now, the mother's facing the opposite direction, can't see it, but she watched this baby being aborted. And it made her so sick that she ran out of that room and threw up, and within a few weeks, she was done for good, and now she is 100% pro-life and fighting against Planned Parenthood and all these other organizations. If mothers could see what's happening, uh, but even when they can't, they're still plagued by all these things. Here's another post-abortion syndrome, and that's shame and denial. Um, post-abortion women often feel like second-class citizens. They live in fear of others finding out about their terrible secret, and most of them do everything they can to keep it a secret. Obviously, you have some of these ridiculous celebrities up there bragging about having abortions and how they're so happy they did it and they would do it again if they had a chance and everything else. Um, but it's a secret for most. And when a Christian has an abortion, she goes into one of two directions. She either cuts herself off from God because she's so ashamed of herself or she tries to become the ultimate Martha, you know, wearing herself out, trying to make up for what she's done, trying to win back God's approval and his blessing. But the shame of abortion drives a lot of women to perfectionism because they feel so, so flawed uh, and sinful. And a lot of women spend a huge amount of mental, mental energy trying not to think about their abortion as well. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. See, unresolved post-abortion feelings are tied to patterns of emotional or physical abuse of living children too. Um, one mother heard this story erupted in intense rage whenever her newborn baby cried. She came to realize that she hated her daughter for being able to do all the things that her aborted baby could not do. And those are things that, that, that women before abortion don't think about, don't know about, are not told. Um, one woman beat her three-year-old son to death shortly after an abortion because it triggered a psychotic episode of guilt, grief, anger, all of those things. So 
Here's number three, post-abortion syndrome, health effects. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut some of these things down, but uh, a lot of researchers have reported over 100 psychological effects of abortion stress. Uh, depression, flashbacks, sleeping and eating disorders, anxiety attacks, diminished capacity for bonding, bonding with children that they have later, increased tendency toward violent outbursts, chronic problems in, in maintaining uh, relationships, difficulty concentrating, so many other things. Um, death is another one. Four times more likely to die in the following year, the mother, if she has an abortion. Um, much higher risk of feminine cancers, severe damage to the feminine organs. Um, you know, uh, most women who have an abortion find out that they can never have a baby again because of the damage that's done because of the abortion. Um, so let's, let's move into this then. Um, and let me just mention this. Well, number four, for every woman who has had an abortion, there's also a man who has a baby that's died. Um, and most of the time, the men have no choice in the matter. Um, whether he's pushed for the abortion or fought it, God's design of his masculine heart to protect and to provide for his unborn baby is also broken at the same time. Um, they say that there's 45 million men with basically bottled up feelings uh, about an abortion that's taking place. Um, so we, we forget about that side as well. But let me look quickly then at some controversial passages or views. We'll, we'll move through this pretty, pretty quickly. But the fetus feels no pain during an abortion. That's, that's, that's a commonly held view. Oh, it's just a blob of cells. It doesn't feel anything. But the evidence is very clear and very consistent that a fetus does indeed feel pain. Consider this statement. that was, This was, comes from the British Medical Journal. Try sticking an infant with a pin, and you know what happens. She opens her mouth to cry, and she also pulls away. Try sticking an eight-week-old human fetus in the palms of his hand. He opens his mouth, and he pulls his hand away. Eight weeks old in the womb. Uh, a more technical description would add that changes in heart rate and fetal description would add that ch uh, changes in heart rate and fetal movement also suggest that intrauterine manipulations are painful to the fetus. So it's a lie to say that the fetus feels no pain. Just because it's a baby that's only eight weeks old, it feels every bit of pain that a baby that was eight weeks old out of the womb feels and that you feel. Uh, here's another one. Some dispute the meaning of Exodus 21. Um, they believe that the first verse only refers to a case of accidental miscarriage. Uh, but since, since only a fine is levied, they say, um, that the unborn baby is merely potential life and does not carry the same legal status as a baby that's been born. But there's two problems with this interpretation. Number one, the normal Hebrew word for miscarry is not used in this passage. Uh, most commentators believe that the action that was described in verse 22 is a premature birth, not an, ex not an accidental miscarriage. Um, the Bible is very clearly in Hosea 9, verse 14. Give them, O Lord, what wilt thou give them? Give them a miscarrying womb. So that word, is not, it's not like, oh, well, that word's not used in the Bible. No, that word is used, and it's not used in that passage in Exodus. Even if the verses do describe a miscarriage, the passage can't be used to justify abortion. The, in, the, the injury was accidental, not on purpose, which is exactly what abortion is. So also that action very clearly in Exodus 21 was criminal action, and the offense was punishable by law. But here's another one. Abortion is acceptable in the case of rape, incense, incense, incest, and when the mother's life is in danger. That's a very common misconception. It's not. It's not. And I know um, when a woman is victimized, um, 
by the way, it's, it's very important to note that the incidence of pregnancy as a result of rape is extremely, extremely small. One study said that that, that results in a pregnancy in 0.06% of pregnancies. So it, it rarely happens. Um, when a woman is victimized, she's not responsible for what was done to her, but she is responsible for her response to being sinned against. And I feel terrible for a woman that has to go through anything like that. She should never have to suffer those things. But, but, it's not the baby's fault. Um, and it's a very touchy subject because how can you tell this woman that she had, and she didn't choose this, and, and, and I understand that. Um, but sinning against her unborn baby and against herself is not justified, even though we certainly could understand why she would do it, but it's not justified. Um, everything, this is number two, must pass through our Christian worldview and bring us to these conclusions, and then we'll be done. Number one, God is still in control, even when he allows unspeakable evil into our lives. I don't know why God allows those things to happen. Now, certainly, um, it didn't take God by surprise that somebody was evil to another person. Um, it doesn't justify what they've done. Obviously, they deserve to be punished to the full extent of the law. They've taken that woman's entire life when they do something like that, especially if she becomes with child as a result of that. But God's still in control, and he knows what's going on even when he allows those things to happen. And that's, that, that's what defines our Christian worldview. But here's the second thing. Because he is good, that means that he has a purpose and a plan to redeem even unspeakable evil, which means that we can trust him. Um, is it hard to understand that situation? Absolutely. I, don't, I, I can't even comprehend being in a situation like that. But God knows. And he's redeemed many, many people out of a, of a horrible, wicked situation. Um, pregnancy resulting from victimization brings an innocent child into existence who has a right to life. Because God has made him or her in his image. Just because we didn't choose that baby's life to come into existence, God did. And God still fearfully and wonderfully made him. God still knew who he was in the womb. God still knew who he was before he was in the womb. And he loves them. He has a plan for their lives where they would never have been conceived. Here's another one. Aborting a baby conceived by victimization doesn't make the pain go away. It doesn't make the problem go away. In fact, what ends up happening is it makes it worse because the lingering guilt of an abortion is horrific. We already looked at a lot of those things. So a woman is victimized, she has an abortion, and now she's being victimized again by all of those other things that are happening because she aborted the baby. A woman will often start to think of her life as divided into before the abortion or after the abortion. And that defines the woman's re the rest of her life. And so uh, in addition to the trauma of being victimized, the woman is then further burdened with the post-abortion syndrome, which we talked about. Um, and then here's, here's um, the last... Is it the last, I believe it's the last controversial, yes, view, is that women have the right to choose since it's their body. Now, let me give you a little scenario here. Jane, we'll just use Jane as the name, decides to chop off the legs of her embryo at week seven. Babies have, embryos have legs by week seven in the womb. Um, believing that Jane has the right to choose what happens to her body, Dr. John, with the help of modern technology, performs the operation and chops the legs off of Jane's embryo. In week 10, Jane decides to chop the hands off of her fetus, and Dr. John again performs what he reasons to be Jane's personal choice and right. Taking it to the extreme, J 
Jane decides to pluck her fetus's eyes out. This is being, somebody's writing this. I'll refrain from continuing this gruesome tale, but it ends in one of two ways. Jane finally decides to have an abortion, or Jane decides to give birth to a blind, amputated child. The second possible outcome reveals the obvious fact that Jane's actions were not done to her own body, but to the body of another individual. And, you know, obviously, if it's true that a woman's right to control her own body extends to her unborn child, then Jane's actions are permissible. Right? If it's her body, then why can't she go cut the hands off of it? Why can't she go cut the legs and the feet off? Why can't she go pluck the eyeballs out of it? It's her body. She should be able to do that if she wants to, right? Assuming that we're not sociopaths, though, <laughs> we're, we're going to naturally condemn Jane's obviously hypothetical actions as inhumane. Uh, we'd call them morally repugnant. I mean, how can you do that to a person and then have this baby, right? Uh, but clearly Jane's right to control her own body doesn't extend to her fetus. A woman's right to bodily autonomy does not go that far. It's not her body. It's not her body. We've talked about that completely genetically different as well. So a woman certainly has a right to control her own body, but the unborn baby though for a time is living inside her body, is not a part of her body. And to say that an unborn entity is part of its mother is to claim that the mother possesses four legs, two heads, four eyeballs, four ears. You know? And obviously that's grotesque. That doesn't happen. It's not part of her body. So since science has been unable to achieve, or, or sorry, has been able to achieve, um, I don't know if I have this in here. Oh, yeah, number two. Since science has been able to achieve conception in a Petri dish, in the case of the test tube baby, they created a baby in a test tube, and obviously, you know, it didn't, wasn't determined. They can't create life, but um, all the parts and everything else, they were able to, they were able to create a baby in a test tube. Um, and, and this, obviously, this, this test tube baby, um, if it had white parents, could be transferred to the body of a black woman if they wanted to. And I mean, they do this kind of stuff all the time. I'm not going to get into all of that, but... Um, we know very conclusively that this baby in a petri dish that's transferred to another woman's body is not part of that woman's body, right? And, and abortion is not justified since no one's right to personal autonomy is so strong that it permits the arbitrary execution of others. You don't have that right. And that baby living inside of you is not part of the woman's body, though it's inside the woman's body for a time. Um, it's not part of the body. And you don't have a right to take that baby's life. Uh, so let me give you these conclusions quickly. Number one, the Bible and logic are on the side of Christians who want to stand for the sanctity of human life. Number two, the Bible doesn't speak of fetal life, a baby's life, as just biochemistry. The description is not a piece of protoplasm that becomes a person. This is a person that's already being cared for and loved by God while in the womb. Now, one scientist, Dr. Beckwith, wrote this. From a strictly scientific point of view, there is no doubt that the development of an individual human life begins at conception. Consequently, it is vital that the reader understand that she did not come from a zygote. She once was a zygote. She did not come from an embryo. She once was an embryo. She did not come from a fetus. She once was a fetus. She did not come from an adolescent. She once was an adolescent. And that's such, a, such an important viewpoint. Letter C, number three, abortion is not the cure to a pregnancy problem. Um, Teresa Burke, who is a counselor for those who are, who are considering abortion, calls it an emotionally draining and physically ugly experience. The majority of, of people 
who have an abortion experience a variety of problems afterwards. Um, one woman who had an abortion was writing some things about it and described it as emotional torture. Um, so letter, letter D, number four, we believe that the Bible clearly teaches that abortion is murder. Some people who don't want to believe that abortion is murder or that an unborn baby is anything more than a potential human being can and will refuse to accept that, but it doesn't change the fact that abortion is murder and that the Bible is against it and that the Bible calls it murder. Our job is to pray for God to open the eyes of the hearts of others, humbly offer the truth, and leave the results to God. Um, and that's one of the reasons why so many of these pro-life people are fighting to make it mandatory that, that a, a woman who wants to get an abortion also be required to get an ultrasound. Because if she can actually see that baby alive and breathing and moving inside her before it's born, most of them would choose not to do it because they're so convinced by the public schools and by the media and by Planned Parenthood and by all these other people that it's not a human in there. It's just a bunch of cells all clumped together. Just get rid of it if that's what you want to do. And that, I mean, it would be a huge, huge step if in abortion clinics, mothers were required to get an ultrasound and see that baby. I think it would cut the abortions in half right there, let alone other things that we could do. Um, we need to talk more about the ways that abortion steals, kills, and destroys, but it's crucial to know that abortion is not the unpardonable sin. I don't know if anybody in here has had an abortion. It does not matter. Jesus Christ died to pay for all sins, including abortion. Um, he extends cleansing and forgiveness to every man and woman who has been wounded by an abortion. Um, no sin is greater than his love or his sacrifice to pay for that sin. He offers reconciliation with God and the grace to forgive ourselves. First John chapter 1 and verse 9. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, most of these, in fact, just about all of these, this is, this is probably one of the longest ones, and I, and I apologize for going a little bit longer than we normally do, um, but it's so important. I'll leave you with this. If we, if we found on Mars what we find in the womb, there would be no doubt that they would declare that we had found life. Even if it was one day after conception. If we found on Mars what we find in the womb one day after conception, they would be going crazy, ecstatic that they found life on Mars. But yet when it's in the womb, on Earth, somehow it's not life. The, the truth is, 99.99% of people know that it's life and know that that's what they're taking. But they're so depraved and they're so misguided and they're so blinded by their sin that they're willing to excuse it, call it something else, do whatever they have to do to be able to continue killing babies. That's why, you ever seen any of these videos of some of these people at the abortion clinics and how crazy they get when there's pro-life people out there trying to convince these women not to go get an abortion. I mean, they're madmen. And why is that? Because they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing, and they're just driven to it because of their sin. And it's our job to, number one, just pray that God will open the eyes, not only of these baby, uh, of these mothers who, who are, you know, potentially going to have babies, but the eyes of these politicians who have the really the ability to, to outlaw it. They can, and they should. 
But we need to pray that that would happen. It's life. It's life no matter how you look at it. Physiological standpoint, medical standpoint, biblical standpoint, no matter how you look at it, it's life. And when we take that life, it's murder. And we're not pro-choice. We're not pro-abortion. We're not pro-murder. We're pro-life. That's what God is. That's what we ought to be too. All right, let's pray. We're not going to have an invitation tonight. We'll pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. Thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be here together tonight. I pray that, that as we looked at these Bible verses and through these things, that would help us to understand what we believe about abortion. Not just, not just be able to say that it's wrong, but know why it's wrong. And be able to, to uh, talk about that intelligently and maybe even at some point convince some girl who's misguided, who's lost, who wants to have an abortion, that she should keep the baby. And that we might, who knows what you can do with that life, but you have a plan for it. That's why it was conceived in the first place. God, I pray that you might help our nation to come back to you. If our nation would come back to you, these problems would be taken care of. Well, thank you for what you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. I said that we're not going to have an invitation, and we're not necessarily going to have an invitation. But let's take a couple minutes, play the piano, but let's just pray for our country. Let's pray that, that this abortion crowd, um, as, as impossible as it seems, would have their minds changed on these things and that we might be able to save just even a few lives. They're precious in God's sight. You see a newborn baby go to the hospital and you hold that baby. That's a precious, precious thing. And here, one by one, they're just killing in the most brutal ways possible. Let's pray for the lives of the unborn. Pray for the mothers who have that decision with those unborn children. And let's pray for our politicians that they, that they would be open to God's moving in their life.